Good morning, Carolina Family Church. Uh, some of, it's been a while since I've been up here. We have a lot of new faces out there. Um, and the ones that you know me know that I like to have a lot of fun uh, and play some games and just have a lot of energy about me. But I will say, I had like a Taylor Swift, Super Bowl, uh, you know, whole intro game going on. But I have 22 verses to get through. If I did one every two minutes, I'm over time. Okay? So we're skipping the intros. We're skipping the fancy stuff. We're skipping the fun stuff. We're going to jump right in it. Okay? And uh, I, would, I would just like to say that this is a great series. I love the fact that we do these. John, John set this up really four groups. There is no way, no way I can do 22 verses justice in the time I'm up here. The groups is where you get into it. That's when you get into the dirt, where you start talking and asking the questions about what actually is happening. Get in a group. Sunday morning does not, it, it doesn't cover it. And getting into Luke, I will say, I love the fact that he is, he's different than the other Gospels. And the fact that he loves history and context. And John did a great job intro in Luke last week. And I, I'll urge you, you do not know what's going on if you do not l- uh, listen to that message. Go back and watch it. And catch up on the intro videos, because we're doing every single verse. And it amazes me that we have to do, we're skipping verses, and still this is going to take a year. That's a lot of Luke. But I'm excited about it. But I will tell you, I have 22 verses to get to the baptism of Jesus with John the Baptist. Luke goes through 20 of those verses without getting to it. And then he talks about it in two verses. All right, so I'm going to have to go cross-reference some other Gospels to really get the story because you don't do Jesus or John the Baptist justice in two verses. And that's exactly what you're going to do in your groups. You're going to read the the baptism story from Matthew, Mark, and John. John's probably my favorite because he's a little more personal and you get things out of that. I'm going to read some of those verses in here. But... Without Luke, none of them, like Luke completes the whole thing because they could care less about context. He could care less about history. At least not enough to write it down. Luke is the one that bridges all of that. But you have to get through some stuff that normally, uh, and I have taken way too long on this intro already. Normally, <laughs> normally you would just breeze over some of this stuff. How many of you guys have read the Bible front to back? When you get to the begats, you know what I'm talking about? So-and-so begat so-and-so that begat so-and-so that begat so-and-so. You just kind of reading it, right? You're thinking about whether you left your clothes in the washing machine and they're going to spell mildewy tomorrow. But Luke starts out the chapter of 3 like that. That's where we're going to start, Luke 3, verse 1. He starts with some names. But you have to realize that everything Luke says is important. Which is great, but it means I have to research everything that he says. I had to, to do a lot of study in this one because there's, some, there's just, they mean something. I need to know what they mean so I can tell you. And we're going to start in chapter 3, okay? And 
There you go. Chapter 3, verse 1. <laughs> it's dark right there. I couldn't see what I was doing. Okay. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Eturia, in the region of Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. See, if you're reading that, you'd have been like, whatever. That sounds, that sounds great. There's some names in there I can't pronounce. I just didn't gloss over the things I don't pronounce very well. Um, this stuff means something. The first verse is dating what time they're in. It's dating the period. It's letting you know we through history. We can go back without the Bible and find out exactly where we're at and how old Jesus is at this time. The, um, where's that? Yeah, Tiberius. All right, come on now. Quit playing with me. Tiberius Caesar was the son of Caesar Augustus. He is the emperor of Rome. And then you have the governor, Pontius Pilate. If you don't know who that is, uh, you'll get to him eventually. Then there's the mayors, the three sons of Herod. And then there's the high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. Now, what I was, when I was reading this stuff, I was like, why, why is this here? Other than today, why, why is this here? What's, what's interesting to me is that when you go to Jesus' trial, you flip to the end of Luke. He comes right back to these names. Because when Jesus went to trial, he went in the backwards order of this. He went to Annas. Annas said, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Send him to Caiaphas. He went to Caiaphas. Caiaphas said, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Then he went to the Jews. You said, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Send him to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate said, ah, let's let the mayor take care of it. It's, it's a more local problem. Sent him to the mayor, Herod. Herod said, nah, I'm good. Send him back to Pontius Pilate. He went through six trials until Pontius Pilate said, you tell me what to do. There's a meaning in all this just besides predating Jesus. Besides that, there's meaning to all these verses. And I'm going to do something because, I, listen, I don't know. When I was reading this, I was like, this is a really weird place to put this, these couple of verses. I'm going to fast forward to verse 19 because if I read this in order of where it is, right before Jesus' baptism, it's kind of a buzzkill. Okay? So I'm going to go ahead and get it out of the way because we are talking about every single verse. And for some reason, right before he baptizes Jesus, he puts this little antidote in there. And I'm going to give you the super fast cliff notes of this because we really got to get into this message. Herod, one of those tetrarchs, likes his brother's wife, seduces her, but in order to marry her, he has to divorce the wife he has. So he marries his brother's wife, divorcing his current wife. His current wife is the king of Syria's daughter. He gets ticked off. He almost demolishes the entire area. And the, king, the, the woman that he uh, divorced to get to is an extremely wicked woman. A wicked, wicked, wicked woman. And her daughter does something called the dance of the veils, which I was going to interpret a dance for you up here. I just don't have time, okay? Maybe we'll make one of those videos in between the message about it. We'll see. <laughs> you don't know. It might be good. She dances this dance of the veils. Herod loves it and says, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. 
she, knowing her mom, hates John the Baptist for some reason. She says, all right, bring me the head of John the Baptist. And that is how John the Baptist dies. Gets put in prison, beheaded. That is why that's in there. All right, look, I, I'm talking about it. If I would have talked about that right before they go in the baptism of Jesus, it would have been a little weird. Okay? So I just went ahead and got it out of the way. Verse 19. Now, let's get into John the Baptist. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Let's go. All right. I need to talk about John the Baptist a little bit. I have to set him up. I have to give you a little bit of context about who he is, where he came from, and what he's doing. He is the son of a priest. There's a whole story behind that that I do not have time to get into. Zechariah and Elizabeth. He is the son of a priest. He is in line to be a priest. But I wouldn't say a typical PK because there's PKs in the room, uh, which are very good PKs. I love you guys. And John's a PK. But for those of us who went to school and were in a Christian school, when you saw a PK, they were the ones that were crazy. Right? They were the wild ones. They were the ones causing all the trouble. Not your kids. Your kids are great. So far. So far, so good. They were the ones causing all the trouble. The PKs were. John the Baptist is a PK. He's a little weird, to say the least. All we know about him is where he was born. He is the cousin of Jesus. Right? His mom is Mary's first cousin, Jesus' mom, which makes him the second cousin. That's pretty much what we know about him, other than the fact that he moved into the wilderness, wore a camel skin top with a leather belt and ate honey and bugs, and was a wild man. That's what we know about him up until this point where we pick him up in Luke. He is a typical PK, just a, well, not typical. He's a weird guy. I would just say that. He's out there. He's, a, he's, he's off the grid, as we would say right now, which I'm going to live off the grid too, so I can't say much about that. But anyway, so in, in uh, verse 3, we pick it up. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remissions of sins, as it is written in the book of the word of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways, made, the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Here's what John is doing. John is in the wilderness preaching and baptizing people for repentance. And what I need to tell you is that we did not come up with baptism. Even though his name is John the Baptist, he did not come up with it either. Baptism back then was a ritual for the Jews. There were two ways that you could do it. A Gentile could become a Jew through baptism, it was part of the ceremony. There was other things you had to do, but in order for a Gentile to convert to Judaism, to be a Jew, baptism was part of that. The other thing was a Jew would baptize themselves or have someone baptize them to cleanse themselves from something. There were several things that you'd be cleansed for, touching a dead body, touching something unclean, being unclean. Before you could go to worship in the temple, you had to cleanse yourself, part of the law. 
So they would baptize themselves or have someone baptize them in water, immerse themselves, full immersion, to be cleansed to go to the temple. That was what up until that point baptism was. That is what they understood baptism to be. And here you have John the Baptist in the wilderness. And God shows up and tells him something that was prophetic from Isaiah years ago. And all four Gospels quote that same scripture, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So if all four of them are saying something, I tend to pay attention to it. That is the voice of God appearing to John the Baptist and telling him to make the way for the Messiah. And back then, all these things, all these terms mean something to the readers of the script back then. Back then, the king would send a courier before he came to a village, before he came to a town, before he came to a city, he would send a courier to tell them that I am coming. So prepare the road. Make the roads straight. Fix them. Make the curves straight. Bring the hills down. Bring the valleys up. Make it comfortable for the king to ride over. So in that scripture right there, it makes sense to them when the voice cries out to tell John to make the way for the king, that he is preparing the way for the Messiah, for the Son of God. That is his job. So he is in the wilderness preaching and telling them they need to repent and baptizing them in repentance, which is a whole other kind of baptism. And it's something that would be new to them. It would be shocking to them. So much that we pick up uh, in verse 7 that the multitudes are a mixed bag. They're Jews and Gentiles. Even so, the Jews had sent Pharisees down to see exactly what was going on because there were so many people there. So John the Baptist is around the Jordan River in the wilderness. People are coming to him to hear what he has to say. He's preaching to them and baptizing them in repentance. And the next verses are his message of that repentance. So we pick it up in verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of Vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? As you can see, John is not trying to win any uh, contests, right? He's not playing Taylor Swift intro games at the Super Bowl. There's not some worship choir singing. I mean, there may have been, but they weren't good enough to say anything about, so we don't know. He's not trying to win any hearts here. He doesn't care what you think. He starts out his message with, you bunch of snakes, how would you feel if I did that? You would feel a little offended. You bunch of snakes. Brood of vipers. You wouldn't like me a whole lot. But that's what he does. This is the multitude that he's preaching to. He starts out saying, you bunch of snakes, verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to tell your, say to yourselves, we, ha we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you, God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Bearing good fruit. He is preaching 
a message of repentance and baptizing people in repentance for the Messiah. And what he's saying is, when you come out of that water, do different. If you are truly repentant, you will bear good fruit. If you are truly repentant, we'll see it in the things that you do. We'll see it in your lives. If you truly mean what you say, if you truly want to turn around, if you truly want to flip a new leaf, we will see it in the things that you do. The things that come out of your life will be good fruit. And there was a practice back then. Um, if you were a child of Abraham, a lot of people had the idea that that was enough. That was good enough. That being who you were was good enough. And that verse right there, John says, nah, you're like these stones. If God born them to make them children of Israel, he could turn these stones into the children of Israel, of Abraham. That's how important who you are is. That these stones could be the same as you are. And then in the next verse, he says, I mean, he's preaching fire, literally. You know what they did to trees? This would mean a lot to them because everything had a purpose. If there was a tree and it bore good fruit, they kept it. If it was diseased or it didn't bear any fruit or it was dying, they just cut it down and burned it. That was part of life. They didn't have hedges and architectural landscapes and all this stuff. Everything, well, I don't know if they did or not. I can't say that. But everything had a purpose. The trees had a purpose to bear good fruit. And if they didn't, they cut them down and burned them. And what he's saying is, you are like those trees. If you are not bearing good fruit, you'll be cut down and burned. So he's called them snakes. He's told them that their heritage means nothing. And he says that if you don't watch out, you're going to be cut down and burned. So far, is a great message. So then the people say, okay, all right, dude. What, what then? Like, you've given us all this bad news. Then what? You're teaching us to repent. You're baptizing in repentance. You're telling us how evil we are, how bad we are. Is there good news? Yeah. Verse 11. He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. What shall we do? Give to somebody who doesn't have. If you have two, give it, give it away. If you have more than enough and you see somebody who doesn't have it, give it to them. The first golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Give somebody else who doesn't have if you have more than enough. Bless someone else. That's pretty easy. Bless someone else when God has given you more than enough. And the next one would have thrown them for a loop because people hated tax collectors. They hated them. I mean, it's totally changed. Totally changed now. Just hated them back then. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but 
The reason why is because the entire system was corrupt. Even down to the high priests, the entire system was corrupt. And tax collectors, I would, uh, I was trying to think of something, they're like bookies or Shylocks, right? And they would show up at the door. There was no uh, internet. They were knocking on your door. And they had the right given to them by the power to take what they needed by any means necessary. And on top of that, they got to keep whatever else they got out of you. Just a recipe for destruction, okay? That is a recipe to make a bad guy worse. So people hated them, hated them so much they weren't even allowed in public worship. But he's not saying don't be a tax collector. He never said that. He said, do your job well. It's okay to be a tax collector. Don't be a slime bag. Be a good tax collector. The same with the soldier that comes up. He says, what about the soldiers? He says, do your job well. It's fine to be a soldier. There's nothing wrong with that. Don't intimidate. Don't gossip. Don't talk about people behind their back. Don't be a bad soldier. Do you know what the church is full of? Be careful. The church is full of churchians. It's a new word. I just made that up. Actually, John made it up. We were talking to each other. I'll give him credit for that. Churchians. Church is made up of churchians. It is very hard in the South, especially in this area, to find somebody who was never churched, who has no religious background. It is very difficult to find that. You, most people have some type of religious background or have been to church in this area. So the easiest way and the best way, especially for me, to influence other people who are not in church, who maybe have not been in church, is to be you out there. That's what you come to church for. That's what we're in the groups, to build you up so that you can show that to other people. All that John's saying is if you are, if you're gossiping, if you're talking bad about somebody, if you've got a bad mouth, any of those things, if people see that, you have destroyed your witness. The best way for us to reach other people is you, right where you're at. The best witness is you just being a good person. And being a Jesus follower, right when you're at, people will see it. They'll come to you. But if you're one of your people, if you're one of these people that is not bearing good fruit, you're just hurting the testimony. You're hurting your witness. All John is saying there, right there, is just be a good person. At that time, wherever you're at, do your job well. And bear good fruit. And this is before he's baptizing anybody. He is preaching to them. Now, after that, they looked at each other and said, Are you Jesus? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? He says, No. And John answered, saying to all, 
Indeed, I am baptized. I baptize you with water. But one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Back then, it was a custom for a servant or a slave to be the one to take the shoes off of the master when they come in and wash their feet. John is saying, I am not worthy to be the Messiah's slave. I am not worthy to buckle his sandals. And I will tell you that Jesus himself later on says about John the Baptist that he is the greatest man to ever be born of a woman. And that is high praise. So the greatest man ever to be born of a woman says to these people that the Messiah is coming, but I am not worthy to buckle his shoes. We see exactly who John is. Humbled to the Messiah. And in verse, in the next piece, he says that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Look, I, even another baptism. And I had to, I really had to do some research on this because I thought I understood it. Turns out I did understand it. But lots of people say lots of different things in commentaries about this. What I think this says, when it talks about Jesus coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit, is that we've had 1,900 plus years of the Holy Spirit. When you get saved, when you accept Jesus as your, as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to guide you, comes to live with you. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there'll be evidence of that in your life, yes. But Jesus came to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's what that's about. And he'll also baptize with fire. That is what happens to you if you're not a Christ follower. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know God, if you aren't free, if you don't have hope, if you're not doing good, if you're not doing all those things that are in our motto, there is a judgment of fire coming, and you will be baptized in it. And the reason I say that that's what this means because of his next uh, example in verse 17. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I, I love it when I read things that directly affect something that has happened to me, that evokes some emotion to me because I have experienced it. And when John's up here, he's preaching from his background. He's preaching from the things that he is influenced by the things that have happened to him. Just like Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John were writing these gospels based on the things that had happened to him with their personality, with their attitude. When I preach, I do the same thing. When I read things... He might, John may, it may not matter to him at all because he may have not ever experienced that. I've experienced this. I know exactly what this is because I've done the work. What would happen is you would gather the wheat in the field with a horse and a carriage, and you would bring that to the barn. And where I was at, there was a second floor. And you would throw the wheat from where you were at to the second floor, and it created a breezeway. It was a breezeway up there. So the wind, you open the doors, and the wind would go right through it. So what you would do is take a pitchfork and throw the wheat up in the air, and it would separate the wheat from the chaff. It would separate the good stuff from the bad. And it would blow the, the wheat into the back of the barn, and you would gather it up, and you would burn the chaff. I've done this. I used to have to do it. 
it, it's describing God as the fan that is blowing the good stuff and gathering the good stuff from the bad. And he says at the end is that if you are not part of that good stuff, you will be burned. Again, fire. That's why I say, I say what the previous verse is about being baptized in fire because of this right here. And then he brings up the example of Herod, the one who put John in prison. And that's why I did that early, because I wanted to get to, I wanted to spend a lot of time on baptism. Because this, to me, all the all this stuff is important, but the baptism part is the most important in this series, in this, that I get to preach. It is the most important. Understanding what the baptisms are, what they mean, why Jesus was baptized, it's very important. And uh, if you, I'm going to fast forward and read the rest of it. This is what John the Baptist, this is what Luke says about it. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. These are, these are big verses. But I'm going to fast forward to John. And I want to read you what John says about it. Same time, same thing's happening. And it says, the next day, John, was, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who was preferred before me, for he was before me. I do not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Let me tell you what's happening there. I think I kind of breezed through some of this when I've studied it before because I didn't, when I went back and really got into it, I didn't really realize that John the Baptist did not know Jesus was the Messiah. At this point, he had no idea that Jesus was the Savior of the world. He was his cousin. He was the cousin that he had grown up with. And in the desert, the same time he got that call to pave the way for the Messiah, the same voice said, I will show you who this is. I will, you will identify this man when you see him with the spirit, the, the shape of a dove. Does the spirit come upon him? And in this crowd, which is amazing to me, in this crowd is Jesus. And up until this point, Jesus has done nothing in ministry. He hasn't started his ministry up to this point. He is getting ready to start. He is getting ready to kick it off. This is the start of everything. And John the Baptist sees the Lamb of God. Sorry, I have a hard time even when I was practicing getting through this part. Because I, I could see him. See Jesus come out of the crowd. And seeing the spirit of a dove come upon him, and he's saying, 
It's, it's you. It's you. And Jesus walks up to him and says, I want to be baptized. And John says, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I, I'm not fit to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. Behold the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. How can I baptize you? I'm not even fit to buckle your shoe. You have nothing to repent of. I can't baptize you. And in Matthew, he says, you should baptize me because it is proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. And I had, to, I had to do a deep dive in this one because I really wanted to get this right. Because I can tell stories and I can talk about historical context and I can find the backgrounds to all that stuff. But when you see things like this and you cross-reference it, what you will do in your groups, there's a reason. Because it all comes together. Jesus says, I need to be baptized which is proper for us, you and me, to fulfill all righteousness. And you're asking the same thing. What, what does that mean? Jesus was baptized. Not to repent. This was not a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism of like what we have, happens when we get baptized. When you accept Jesus as your Savior, when you step out in faith and decide that Jesus is your Lord, and you believe in that, we talked about this in Romans, your account is paid for. You are made righteous. When you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and, he, and you have the faith to believe in that, He counts you as righteous. He makes you righteous. And when you get baptized, you are fulfilling that righteousness. When you come out of that water, you are saying, I am with Him. He is my Lord. He is my God. And in this moment, it wasn't a baptism of repentance for Jesus because he had nothing to repent for. He was identifying with us, and then in baptism, identified with Jesus, with God. He identified with his Father. And from this moment, he said, from now on, the rest of my life, this is what I'm going to do. I identify with God. That's the same thing that happens when we get baptized. We're not baptizing for repentance. We're not under some law. Baptize, baptism is something amazing. And we have one coming up. If you've never been baptized, I urge you to do it because what happens when you stand around a group of people who love you, who are your family, who are your community, and you get baptized and you say, I am going to identify with the Father from now on. It is empowering. It changes your life. For you to say in that moment, surrounded by the people that you love who are loving you, lifting you up as family and community, I identify with God. 
And what's amazing is Jesus did it before. He identified with God before he went to the cross and died. It was a picture of that before it ever happened. And now we do it to represent it in the past. B- baptism is, I, think, I don't think we really give it enough credit. I think it's something that we just do sometimes. I got baptized down the street. And it was a Baptist church that had clear glass in front of the pool, you know. And I was popping bubbles in there. It, it did, not that it didn't mean anything to me, but I was so young at the time that I really didn't catch what was happening. Baptism is special. It's the moment you say, I'm with him. I'm with him. You're identifying with God. And I just, I just want to say, in this time, right now, we struggle with identity more than anything else. Identity is a hot topic. And for people who don't know Jesus, for people who don't know God, they are trying to find identity in everything else. They're trying to find something to fill that space, something to fill that void. They're trying to find something that will make them feel better about themselves, give them purpose. So they're looking everywhere else. If you know God, that is your identity. That is where your identity is. And if it's in the right place, everything, every decision you make, every thought you have, every move you make, Everything comes under that. It stems from that. It stems from God. But it's very easy, even for, it's very easy for me to shift that to whatever is most important in my life at the moment. Not that I don't love God. Not that I'm still trying to be a good Christian. Not that I'm still trying to do the right things. I'm trying to bear good fruit. But in my life at the moment, something has changed my identity. Something that is very important to me at the moment has changed to number one. And if that's the case in your life right now, everything that stems from that will change to match whatever that is. Whatever is most important in your life right now, if you put that over God, then every decision that you make, every move you make, will be because of that, will come from that. It'll be shifted. It'll be out of whack. It, does, it, it can't just happen to somebody who doesn't know God. It can happen to us too. If God's not number one, everything you do under that will change. And it takes work to make God number one. It does. It it doesn't just happen. You have to talk to him. You have to read your Bible. It It is so important, and it is a struggle for me. It's so important to start your day with God. 
to start your day with Jesus. If you make it a priority to make him number one every day, all the time, you would be amazed at how many decisions in your life change. How much easier things get. Reflecting on him as number one and not you and not something else. When Jesus came up out of that water, he said, from now on, everything I do will be to God. Every move I make is for the ministry. This is where it started. And it is amazing to me that in the, in the Luke, sorry, it's such an important moment that God shows up. And says, I am proud of him. This is my son. This is how important baptism is. That God and the Holy Spirit showed up. And said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I am proud of him. I can imagine being Jesus in that moment. That's how much our father loves it. When we identify with him, that he shows up and says, I'm proud of him. And the only reason I'm crying is because I, I didn't have my dad when I was this age. So I don't know that I ever got to hear that from my dad. I can't imagine being Jesus and hearing your dad say, I'm proud of you. I can't imagine it. Baptism is important. And we're going to have a baptism. John said maybe at the end of March. So I urge you, if you've never been baptized, let us stand around you as your community, as your family, and say how proud of you we are that you're identifying with Jesus. Who's your number one? What is number one in your life? If you've shifted from God, if God is no longer your number one, you've got to do the things and do the work to put him back in that place. And that's talking to him, that's praying, that's church, that's groups. That's the stuff. That's the fruit. That's what will get you back there. Let's pray. Hey, God, I, I just thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be a child of God. For giving me the opportunity to stand here and say, I am with you. And that everything I do from this moment on will be for you, because of you, with you. I ask that you would show us places in our life where we need to be better. The fruit that needs to be pruned. The things in our life that we need to cut off. The things that we need to do make you number one. If anybody's here that 
can't make you number one because they don't know you. I ask that you would soften their heart. Chase them. Bring them to you. Remind them of who you are. And if there's anyone here who hasn't experienced baptism, who hasn't experienced that moment that represents death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, let that happen into their lives. So when they come out of that water, they can say, I'm with you. We love you. Thank you for everything you've done for us. Amen.